Hello and welcome to another episode of Future of Tax, the KPMG podcast series for tax leaders. For today's episode, I'm joined by Chris Morgan, global leader for the KPMG Responsible Tax Programme, KPMG International. Hannah Hawkins, Principal, KPMG Washington National Tax, KPMG in the US. And Becky Knight, Practice Manager for KPMG Global ESG Tax and Legal, KPMG International. In today's episode, we'll discuss how the tax system is being used globally to pursue decarbonisation activities, with particular emphasis on the recent Inflation Reduction Act reform in the US, which has massively expanded the tax credits available for many decarbonisation activities. Chris, Hannah and Becky, thanks for taking the time to join me on the podcast today. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here too. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's just so much to discuss. So Chris, I think that many of our listeners will have a grasp of the fact that carbon taxes and carbon pricing globally are becoming more prevalent. But do you think that drawing on your work from the Responsible Tax Project and across the environmental tax policy space, you can try and explain in in two minutes just the scale of change in the last five years or so? I think the scale of change really has been very mixed. If we look at what the World Bank has been saying recently, back in 2015, there were about 38 different pricing initiatives out there. And now there's 68 and there's about 29 that are under consideration. And I'm including in that both carbon taxes and emission trading systems. Also, if we look at uh, COP26 last year, I think about 90% of the world economy was pledged to meet the net zero target sometime in this century. And then if we look at the price of allowances in the EU trading system, only in 2018, an allowance was about 10 euros per tonne of carbon. And now it's sitting at about 75, 80 euros per tonne. And the EU is proposing to extend the ETS and to reduce the allowances even further. So a lot is going on. There's a lot for companies to take in. Having said that, the report by the UN Climate Change that came out just before COP27, which has just kicked off, says that while the trajectory for increasing emissions is no longer going to increase after 2030, still we're not moving fast enough to reach the target of keeping within 1.5 degrees by the end of the century. So there's a lot more to do. I think there's going to be a lot more change and there's a lot for companies to think about and a lot for them to, to keep their eyes on to see what's coming down the line. Thanks, Chris. You mentioned carbon taxes and emissions trading schemes there. I was wondering, Becky, could you give us a really quick overview of the benefits of using carbon pricing and what the differences between each of these measures are? They both operate the sort of polluter praise principle. So you make emissions more expensive, then hopefully people and businesses will undertake those activities which create those emissions less. On a carbon tax, that's sort of generally, and I generalise because there are different types, these are generally a fixed charge on embedded carbon content of a good or maybe a fuel. From a sort of government and business perspective, they're quite easy to administer, which is especially important for developing countries. But they don't make emissions go down. They rely on the price signals to the market, hoping that they will find a better alternative. But sometimes the price of those things just goes up, which can have sort of regressive impacts or make those goods or fuels less affordable. On emissions trading schemes or ETSs, they also put a price on carbon and usually operate under a cap and trade system. So the cap being that there's limited permits released by government and you need a permit to emit usually one tonne of CO2. And the trade being that 
these permits are tradable and the price is set by the market depending on demand. Usually the amount of those permits falls each year, thereby reducing emissions. And the benefit of that ensures that there's definitely emissions reduction and the carbon price is reactive to the market. But these can be really difficult to administer both for tax authorities and business as you've got to go through complex emissions verifications processes and also you know, trade these on a regulated permit trading market. Thank you both for sharing your thoughts on the use of carbon pricing measures. Using tax as a decarbonisation tool or the stick side of the approach has really expanded in use, but tax incentives or the carrot are definitely favoured in other parts of the world. Hannah, as someone who's based in the US where incentives reign supreme, could you give us some insights into why this is? It is correct to point out that the use of tax incentives in the US is the favored tool. I mean, we have had for many, many years tax credits specifically targeted to certain technologies, specifically solar and wind. And those tax incentives, both investment-based tax incentives and production-based tax incentives, have significantly supported the development of wind and solar and and the success of those sectors can be attributed to those tax credits. And the use of tax incentives generally in the U.S. has long been used. It used to be that the investment tax credit incentivized everything in sort of business investments, along with things like accelerated depreciation. So it is it is coming from a long line of policymaking that the use of carrots rather than sticks has been the predominant tool in the U.S. Thanks, Hannah. Now, we can't talk about incentives or the US without saying a few words about the Inflation Reduction Act. Can you explain why this bill is so important in the world of environmental tax incentives and give us some examples of the impact it's already having on the behaviour of businesses? Absolutely. The, the Inflation Reduction Act is a monumental development in this space. It not only extended the existing tax incentives we had for investments in development of clean energy, like I mentioned, the tax credits around things like solar and wind, but it has created brand new incentives for newer and developing technologies, things like, for example, the development of clean hydrogen. So, the Inflation Reduction Act has extended and enhanced existing tax credits, created new tax credits, but it has also sort of made these incentives more accessible. It used to be that these tax credits were non-transferable and non-refundable, and the Inflation Reduction Act has made many of the tax credits fully refundable. So you can benefit from these tax incentives, whether or not you have tax capacity, whether or not you owe tax, and transferable. So you can sell your tax credits for cash. This really opens up the ability for you know, different stakeholders to be able to benefit from these tax credits. And to the question of whether we are seeing already changes in behavior, changes in investment, changes in timeline as a result of the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act, I think the answer to that is, is absolutely yes. For example, not only are the incentives in the Inflation Reduction Act related to the development of power generation technologies, but there's also incentives for investments in the manufacturing of components necessary for those projects. So manufacturing of things like solar panels or battery technology. And we are seeing so much activity with respect to companies planning into investments, changing locations, changing timelines in order to plan into some of these manufacturing tax credits. And of course, more generally, these tax credits have sort of supercharged the existing timelines for many of the tax credits for the existing technologies like wind and solar. So just to summarize, 
the Inflation Reduction Act is having huge and immediate impacts. Thanks, Hannah. So with the combination of net zero commitments in 90% of the world's economies, carbon pricing to disincentivise emissions and initiatives to drive investment in clean technologies, together these sound like a decarbonisation trifecta. And yet we're still seeing some jurisdictions feel like this is not enough and they're bringing in additional measures, like the European Union's Carbon Border Adjustment Mechanism, or CBAM. Chris, could you give a very quick recap on what CBAM is and why the EU felt it was necessary to bring it in? So in the EU, uh, heavy industry, so that's power production, production of steel, iron, aluminium, cement, that sort of thing, is covered by the ETS, the emissions trading system. And that means that industry has to purchase allowances in order to be able to emit a certain amount of CO2. And there is therefore a concern that the cost of these allowances will push up the cost to the ultimate consumer of the product. And that might lead to people either trying to source the product from outside the EU or even to industries moving part of their production outside the EU. Now, there's not a lot of empirical evidence of this happening. This is called a carbon leakage. But studies show that as the carbon price increases, there's a greater risk of carbon leakage. So the EU has introduced or has proposed to introduce CBAM, Carbon Border Adjustment Mechanism. And the idea there is it will apply to the same heavy industries. So to start off with things like steel, aluminium, cement, and when those goods are imported into the EU, the importer will have to purchase a certificate and the price of that will be based on the price of a permit under the ETS. So what it does is it equalises the price of carbon for imports with the price that a EU producer is paying. It's also important to, to note that there will be a credit that's given for any foreign carbon tax or ETS price that's paid outside the EU. So there's not a double charge here. Chris, I noticed that you said CBAM would take into account carbon prices paid by other jurisdictions, but you didn't say anything about incentives. No. So if there is an incentive outside the EU to reduce the carbon content of, of goods or even regulation, that's not going to be taken into account. And I think there's a number of reasons for that. One is it's very difficult to link any incentives with the actual content of the CO2 in a product. But also, probably it's not necessary because if those incentives or foreign regulations have worked, then it should have resulted in there being a lower carbon content in the goods. And therefore, when they're imported into the EU, there will be a lower CBAM charge than otherwise. So at the end of the day, the importer would still be paying an equivalent amount on the embedded CO2 that's remained in the goods, an amount that's equivalent with a EU domestic producer. Having said that, there are still concerns that CBAM as a whole could be some kind of green protectionism or potentially could have issues with the WTO rules. Thanks, Chris. And Becky, do we know if there's anyone working on a solution which wouldn't involve import tariffs and would be more inclusive in general? I think you need to talk a bit about climate clubs. In June of this year, the G7 announced they would form a climate club by the end of 2022. But the sort of premise around the climate club, the idea, it's not it's not new. The premise is that you would get the world's biggest emitters to join a to carbon or a climate club and agree upon some specific, measurable, comparable ways to reduce emissions. So 
While we haven't actually got a definitive statement from the G7 on what their climate club is going to look like, a couple of weeks ago there was a report published by the London School of Economics on a rationale and possible design of a climate club. This report was commissioned by the G7 and might be a good indication of what the climate club will look like, but we are yet to see what they'll actually adopt. But I think if if we look at this report and pull out some key points that might give us some clues as to what it might look like, what kind of tariffs it may or may not involve and the inclusivity of it. One of the first things that jump out is they highlight that the word club is by definition exclusionary. For such a thing to work, it needs to be an alliance whose membership is open to all countries, regardless of their sort of priorities, development circumstances and policy mixes. So like we've talked about carbon pricing, some regulatory interventions or tax incentives or other subsidies. The paper warns against turning the climate club into one big CBAM. Firstly, as Chris said, it's just so difficult to compare the efficacy of different policy mixes and then attach a fair price tag to those emissions. And also because they believe that there shouldn't be any penalties for those not in the club and you can see that, you know, for smaller developing nations who will have less emissions anyway, would it be fair for them to then have to pay because they're not in this club? Probably not. They have advised the G7 that the club should instead focus on minimising frictions that will inve- inevitably rise as individual countries seek to implement their own CBAMs. They want to do this by helping to smooth the implementation of those individual country CBAMs, sharing best practice on alternative anti-leakage measures and improving the development of methodologies for measuring the carbon content of what's often complex goods. And I think this is probably the main thing that our heads of tax will be interested in. The Climate Club is probably not going to look like a big CBAM. There will be some out there who are hoping for some progress on a framework or methodology to really get down to the nitty gritty of comparing the efficacy of policy mixes. And I don't think that's what we're going to get. But they do note that the OECD is working on a stock take of mitigation policies globally, and they're trying to estimate the impact those policies will have on emissions. So maybe once we get that work, it will be easier to compare carbon price policies and non-carbon price measures in the future. But I think for those who are hoping that a climate club would offer an answer to these equivalency issues straight out of the blocks, there'll be maybe a bit of disappointment, but probably not a surprise. Thanks, Becky. Hannah, I know it's difficult to say, but do you think these developments mark an important step forward in emissions reduction, particularly for countries who use instruments like incentives? As you noted, it is difficult to say. I will point to the fact that in the US, you know, the Inflation Reduction Act's investment in clean energy is you know, $370 billion. And the U.S. Department of Energy's preliminary assessment of the Inflation Reduction Act's impact on emissions finds that the new law, together with other existing policies, will help drive economy-wide greenhouse gas emissions to 40% below 2005 levels. These are preliminary assessments, and we don't, we'll have to see how the investments in the activities and the reactions play out. But given that initial assessment, and given the, the, huge, the huge investment that's being made, hopefully we will see tangible results and be able to quantify those results as well. Thanks, Hannah. We've covered a lot today, and you've all given our listeners a lot to think about. To conclude, what advice would you leave our listeners with? Hannah? 
I would say that to be aware of the full spectrum of what's out there. I mean, again, I'm talking from the U.S. where we have investments and I spend a lot of time talking to companies about how to align what they're doing with these incentives, but also it's important to pay attention to what's, what's happening in the rest of the world. And Chris, what would you add? And I'd absolutely agree with that. Um, I held a meeting recently with colleagues from all around the world. And what was really interesting is particularly people in Asia, but also in, in the Americas, were very interested in the knock-on effects of what was happening in Europe, and whether or not other countries would start to follow suit or to take, we'll call it defensive measures. So will there be an increase in carbon pricing in certain countries in order to make sure that those domestic industries are not impacted adversely by CBAM if goods are imported into the EU? So I think there's a lot to do in terms of horizon scanning to see what's out there. What the uh, knock-on effects of those rules could be and then how it impacts on the whole of the supply chain in the industry. And finally, if I can come to you, Becky. Yes, I echo what Chris has said. It looks like we're headed for increased carbon taxes and probably more CBAMs as well. But hopefully, where there are businesses whose supply chains will be impacted by these developments, there will also be increasing availability of and willingness to use tax incentives aimed at driving that green investment. That's great. Thanks, Becky. And on behalf of our listeners, I'd like to thank you, Chris and Hannah for joining me on the podcast. That's all we have time for today. But please join us again next time. And also emails with any questions you have about today's episode at tax at kpmg.com. We'd also love to hear from you with any suggestions you have for future episodes. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.